If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Peter. That's where we'll be. Walking through the entire book in a series. Last week we began the series. This week we'll continue in chapter 1. Along about verse 13 is where we will begin. As you're turning, I want to remind you of a couple things coming up in the life of our church. This Wednesday, we will have a... uh, Wednesday day of prayer culminating and everybody gathering right here in the building at 6.30. So uh, this Wednesday, come pray with us. We'll pray for a couple hours. We'll have some music. We'll have some rooms set up to pray for specific things. And then you can just come in here and pray for whatever you want to as well. So that'll be a fun time this Wednesday night, 6.30. And a couple weeks on Saturday morning, uh, March the 7th at 8.30 uh, until about lunchtime, we'll have a women's seminar right here. Uh, You'll enjoy that. Jesus on your behalf, focusing on how the risen Christ intercedes for you. What that means about him, what that means for you. I think you'll enjoy it. We'll have uh, breakfast for you and then lunch afterwards with the ladies. Uh, That is March 7th. You can uh, sign up through the RSVP. If you're a guest, just come see me. We'll work it out. And then about a month from now, we'll have our annual men's retreat. It's spring. we got a lot of things going on. Uh, the fellas are going to head down to South Carolina and get away from things at a cabin by the river. Uh, it's really nice for a couple days and uh, just do men's stuff, Bible and uh, food. That'll be good. Lots of other things too. See Tim Snover if you haven't signed up for that yet. Love to have you with us. So a lot of things going on. Uh, as we move towards the sermon, let me just pray for us. God, thank you for the worship you've given us already. The testimonies of your grace, the prayers, the songs, and now I pray that you would speak to us through your word, shape us, mold us, conform us to the image of Christ as we hear you by your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you had to guess who was at the top of the top ten highest paid actors in Hollywood, who would you guess? Forbes put out a list of who was the highest paid last year. Might surprise you, the number one coming in at making uh, over $80 million last year was Dwayne Johnson, the, <laughs> the Rock, the Rock fan, I like it. Yeah, as he has risen from a wrestling superstar to the pinnacle of all superstardom, along the way he did something that was a little bit surprising. He created an app, all right? This app that I don't think exists anymore, but in 2016, he made an app called The Rock Clock. And it's an alarm clock for your phone. If you so desire, you can set it and wake up every morning to The Rock's voice. (laughs) He will say things to you to get you on track. Like, let's get it, or it's on now. And you can set it for whatever time. He put out uh, to his 170 million Instagram followers uh, the reason for doing this. He said, hey, I wake up at 4 a.m. every morning, and that's how I beat my competition. If you want to win in your life, you can use my app to wake up early, and I'll get you started. And that's why he did it. The pinnacle of the app was a feature that allowed you to sync your wake-up time with The Rock's wake-up time. So whenever he wakes up, you can wake up at the same time. Now, you may think, oh, that's silly or not. You may have the rock clock. I don't know. (laughs) But what I want you to note there is 
his method. Why this works is that basically he was saying, based on what I've accomplished, I now want to call all my followers to tap into my grit and get after it. Right? The same philosophy behind any type of diet. If you're on a keto diet, you probably have seen somebody have success with it. And you're like, oh, they can do that. Now I can do it too. It's the same idea. We're wired to respond to someone or something who has achieved much. What's interesting is we continue to walk through the Bible today in First Peter. You'll see that this concept also applies to spiritual realities. Last week, as we started chapter 1 together, we saw what God accomplished for us in Jesus. He saved us. He gave us an inheritance. He fulfilled his promises. He sustains our joy. All of this is the work of Christ on your behalf. He accomplished it. Today, Peter, through the word of God, is going to call you to respond in light of what he has accomplished. The apostle Peter has always been a man of action. And you'll see it today in the text. Based on all that God has done for you in the gospel, he now beckons you to respond to him each and every day. What we're going to look at today is what we call moving from longing to living. From longing to living, we'll look at four gospel calls here. Four gospel calls from the Word of God. Here's the first one. You'll find it beginning in verse 13 of 1 Peter. You can read it. I'll read it too. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Very first word is therefore, and it's there for a reason. It lets us know that all Peter is going to say next is constructed upon the previous truths of the gospel. So from the outset, when he's talking about calling you into action, he frames the whole conversation. Any spiritual success you have in your growth is empowered by what Christ has already done. So it's a fence of humility that he puts around the discussion. If you are growing in godliness, it's because something that Jesus has already done. We inhale by his grace, we exhale by his spirit. None of the calls from the gospel today are calls to self-sufficiency. They're calls to depend on on Jesus. When you jump, Christ is the trampoline propelling you forward. Our first call here is to hope fully. Not hopefully, but hope fully, completely in Jesus. Hope in what? Well, according to the text, it is grace given to us at a future event, verse 13. What event is it? It's the event that Peter calls the revelation of Jesus Christ. You might call it Christ's second coming or Christ's return. Peter calls it the revelation of Jesus. One day, Jesus, who is not here, will come physically back. The unseen will become seen, and you will behold the very face of your God. Jesus is returning. There will be a lot of blessings that he brings with him. The one he concentrates on in this text and following is how Jesus will make his people sin. We still struggle with sin. He will make us sinless. 
We are to long for this return. Now, the entire section of 1 Peter here is going to be built on our longing to see Jesus. Now, that prevents, uh, presents a little bit of a challenge for us. Because I don't know about you, but I can go periods of time without even thinking about the return of Christ. I might think about Jesus' death and his resurrection or loving people. But you can go a day, a week, even a month without meditating on the fact that Christ is coming back. And Peter says, thinking about this is going to be the foundation of your sanctification, your growth, meditating on Christ coming again. So how do we grow in this? Our anticipation of the coming of Christ. How do we grow? We're given a couple ways here in this verse. First off, he uses the phrase, prepare your mind for action. This was a phrase in the ancient world when people would wear long robes. Uh, The phrase there is what they would use to pick them up when they got to work. Uh, We might say, get your work gloves or put on your car hearts, right? Uh, We were painting not too long ago in my house, and just like that beautiful testimony we had about community group, uh, a lady from my community group was going to come over and help Julie paint our house. And I remember opening the door, and I realized right away her outfit for painting is a little different than her outfit for Wednesday night community group. She had on this sweatshirt with spatters of paint everywhere, something covering her head, She had in her hand an ancient paintbrush she brought, her own paintbrush. Had been through all the wars. And the look she had in her eye went right through me to the walls. She was ready to work. You know what it means to be ready to get down and get to hard work. That's what Peter is saying to you. If you're going to increase your longing for Jesus, you've got to be ready to get to work. Prepare your mind for action. What does that look like for a Christian? Well, it's hard work anytime you grab your Bible. For most of us, if we're going to spend time in the Word, it's either way early before a long day or at the end of a day when we're all tired. Either one of those is hard work. And then if you even get to your Bible and you open it up and you start to read, there's hard work in seeing Jesus in it. You have to find Jesus and see his goodness and his forgiveness and his care for you and his sacrifice. All that can be really hard work. I have a Bible reading plan that I do, and I was was in Numbers 21 today, and I was just uh, reading and listening to it. Uh, The guy speaks to you, the Bible, and I'm thinking, man, sometimes it's really hard from the book of Numbers to meditate on Jesus, but he got to one part, and I just had one phrase, and that connected it, and I thought, whew, man, that's hard work. Even when you get here, it's hard Peter says you have to do that work if you're going to increase your longing for Jesus. What else do you have to do? You need to dive into deep relationship with God's people. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ is in God's people. If you want to experience Him, therefore long for Him more, you've got to move closer to people. And that's hard work. You have to manage your schedule. You have to move and arrange things so that you can be with God's people. If you want to increase your longing, you have to spend time with God in prayer. You have to commune with Him. Also hard. That takes patience and organization. Focused effort. But Peter seems to think, like anything good in life, 
If you work for it, it will be sweet. The result will be worth it. If you work to increase your vision and experience of God, he will increase your longing for Jesus' return. That's the first point here. And next, I want to see this phrase, being sober-minded. The first way that you increase your longing is preparing your mind for action. The the second way, he uses the phrase in verse 13, be sober-minded. Not just sober, which means not drunk. He wants that for you too. But sober-minded, he's using the imagery of sobriety to teach you. He doesn't... uh, just mean don't go on wild drinking sprees. Instead, he's comparing your minds in this world to one who is uh, infatuated, intoxicated by the excess of material things. He warns you against being solely focused on the things of this world. One pastor, uh, Tom Schreiner, puts it this way. He said, there's a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God. That is, anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desire. Did you hear the last part? They lose sight of the revelation of Jesus Christ and concentrate solely on fulfilling earthly desires. To increase your longing for the world to come and the person to come, Jesus, you've got to reduce the noise of this world. Or you've either got to learn how to bounce from it to thinking about Jesus. A couple weeks ago I went kayaking, spent a couple hours out kayaking, and there's a way to do this where I'm only observing the creation. Man, it's quiet out here. I love it. Nobody's screaming. No kids. This is great. No, I was with a kid. I didn't think that. But we were kayaking, there's a way to only lose myself in creation. Or there's a way to have this experience and let creation remind me of my creator. A tree is beautiful. Reminds me of the beauty of Jesus. This is a still place. Reminds me of the the quiet solemnity of my Lord. On and on and on. We have to learn to live, especially when we have excessive things and excessive time, in a way that looks forward to the return of of Jesus, a sober-mindedness about whatever it is you're doing. So that's our first call. Let's endeavor together to work hard to develop a longing for Jesus and enjoy his creation, but as we do it, let's look forward to the coming creator. Now, this first call to fix your hope on Christ has been said to incentivize the next three hopes the next three calls that he gives in the text. That is to say that as we're living, God wants you to live all of your day in light of the fact that Christ's coming. His coming should provide an incentive for how you are to live your life. So it informs the next three calls of the gospel that we see here. In light of Christ's coming in verses 14 through 16, we see that we are called to chase God's holiness. That's the second calling from the text. Chase the holiness of God. Let's read together verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
since it is written, verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. We find our next gospel call lodged within verse 15. Be holy in all of your conduct. He's going to explain this, Peter does, by way of contrast. The contrast is between God's nature and your nature. Look in verse 14. We're reminded that lurking in our hearts are these passions of our former lives, deeply disturbing desires of unbelief that will still try to control you. I read this uh, week a story in the news. It was an old one from 2011. And it was about a uh, tragic mass shooting. And there was a woman survivor that was being interviewed. And she's recovered now. Uh, but she was saying that uh, she still had two bullets that were shot into her in her back. The doctor said it would be more dangerous if we pulled these out, damaging the nerves. So she has to live her life with bullets in her back. And she says, I'm a walking evidence locker. Even though she's recovered She still literally has the bullets and the trauma in her body. That illustrates a little bit the idea that uh, Peter is getting at with our sin nature here. The idea that Peter is getting at with our sin nature. Though we've been regenerated and recreated by the Holy Spirit based on Christ's work, we're still scarred and we're still stained. Except we don't have ammunition in us. We have something even worse. We have evil a sin nature. And the Bible says that it's possible that we can be conformed to it. What would that look like? Well, maybe you don't want to love somebody. Instead, you kind of hate them. You don't like them. What ends up is you actually express that hate. right? Maybe you feel deceptive in your heart. What ends up happening is you tell a lie. That's your sin nature. Maybe in your heart you really truly believe that you're a little bit better than that person. What happens? You begin to act like you're better than that person. That's conforming to your old desires. And Peter says, we got to put that off. We got to put that away. We cannot be conformed to those passions. What should we do? Well, our hope is smuggled into this verse, reminding us of our identity in verse 14. The key to getting past this, he says, is quite surprising. He says, you need to be a child. You need to be a child. Verse 14 says, as obedient children. He doesn't say be childish, but he is reminding you that you have been reborn as a child of God. And in God's family, the kids look like the father. You may know that LeBron James, NBA superstar, has a son. LeBron Bron, high schooler, playing ball now, and you can bet he dunks like a beast. He's headed for the NBA. Why? He's like his dad. And that's the hope that Peter gives us in Jesus. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. Therefore, you have the capacity to grow and put off your old desires. That's why he says in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, God, you also be holy. God has the power to build you up in your own holiness, even as he calls you to strive for it. 
This whole section in 1 Peter shares the background of Leviticus, the Old Testament book. In that book, God is calling his people to stand out and look different than the pagans of the promised land and the pagans of Egypt from which they were rescued. There's so many references to this type of holiness in the book of Leviticus that we can't even figure out what verse he's quoting in verse 16 when he says, be holy as I am holy. There are a lot of them. The point is that Peter is reminding us that God has always demanded holiness from his people. So what's this look like for us? What does it look like for us to pursue the holiness of God? Well, one thing is we want to avoid two different extremes here. There's one extreme in pursuing holiness that says, ah, God is so loving and forgiving that he really has no moral standard for me. Whatever I do, he'll just forgive it, so I'll do what I want. Well, that's a lame view of God. We don't want that extreme. But a lot of people drift towards that. The other extreme is where we start to make up man-made do's and don'ts, right? Uh, I think this is good and holy, so I'll do this. I don't think this is good, so nobody can do this, right? It's, it's man-generated. That's the other extreme we don't want to drift towards. Last year, you might remember... Uh, the whole controversy over the restaurant Chick-fil-A. Uh, earlier in the year, in 2019, several airports uh, removed Chick-fil-A from the airports. They did it because they said that Chick-fil-A was not pro-gay enough in who they gave their money to, right? So at the end of the year, uh, Chick-fil-A changed how they distribute their funds. They said it was one reason, but a lot of people thought, oh, you're just caving in. Right? So the backlash was now you have Christians who are now boycotting Chick-fil-A because they don't like how they change the way they use their money. That's not the kind of holiness that Peter is really talking about here. He's talking more about things that God emphasizes in the scripture. Here's how one pastor said you can view it. Uh, pastor Kevin DeYoung said, it's helpful for him, if you're considering growth and godliness, to consider your own body, all right? Just as a reminder of what God would have you do as for holiness, remind yourself of how your body works. Here's what he says. I'll read the quote. Picture your mind. Your mind is filled with the knowledge of God and fixed on what is good. That's holiness. Your eyes turn away from sensuality and shudder at the sight of evil. Your mouth tells the truth and refuses to gossip, slander, or speak what is coarse or obscene. Your spirit is earnest and steadfast and gentle. Your soul rests and rejoices in Jesus. Your muscles toil and strive after Christ-like virtue. Your heart is full of joy instead of hopelessness, patience instead of anger, humility instead of pride, thankfulness instead of envy. Your sexual organs are pure being reserved for the privacy of marriage between one woman and one man. Your feet move towards the lowly and away from senseless conflict or divisions, wild parties. Your hands are quick to help those in need and ready to fold in prayer. When you lose track of what holiness is, it might be helpful to scan your body from head to toe and remember what God desires of you. And also remember what Christ has done for you, what he's making you to become. So in light of Christ's coming, 
Let's chase after God's holiness together. That's Peter's call to you from the text today. So first, fix your hope on Christ. Second, chase God's holiness. The third one's a surprising. The gospel call that I might not have picked, but this is what Peter says. It's from verses 17 through 21. In light of Christ's return, Peter says, live in fear of God. Live in fear. That sounds strange. What's he mean by that? Well, let's look at it. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one, each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then he goes on to elaborate a little bit. Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Go back up to verse 17, and you'll see the point of the passage here. You are asked to mingle two concepts of God, God as Father and God as Judge. The one who you tenderly, asked to come to you, and he does when you need comfort, it's the same God who will also assess your good works in the coming judgment. You can't have one without the other because God is infinitely complex. He's nuanced in ways that we aren't. And when you picture God as judge, you might think, why is Peter talking about a coming judgment to believers, right? After all, When Jesus died for us, we won't be condemned because his sacrifice pays for us, right? What is this judgment? Well, that's right as far as it's go, but the New Testament still speaks about a coming judgment, even for believers, in which our works will be assessed by God. These works serve as evidences of our new life. To be clear, it's not judicial condemnation that's happening. That will not happen to all believers because of Jesus' propitiation of God's wrath. But he is saying that when Jesus returns, there will be a judgment of how you've lived your life. Those who have lived for themselves and not for Christ, all of their works will be condemning of them. Those who have lived for Jesus, everything they do that is good will be a testimony as to how Christ has changed them. God will be the great assessor. He is the judge. Now, the thought of this judgment in verse 17 should provoke us to what Peter says, conducting ourselves with fear. Verse 17, conduct yourself with fear. What's that mean? We usually don't like fear, right? It's not something you usually encourage somebody in. Hey, go ahead today. Be fearful. That's not the way we talk. Professional counselor will probably tell you to stay away from scary people, right? What does he mean by conducting yourself with fear? Well, first off, the fear he's talking about is not the type of terror that you might experience if someone breaks into your home, right? You're not supposed to feel that way about God. After all, he is your father. 
So it's not that type of fear, but it's also a little stronger than awe or reverence. Awe or reverence is just, oh, he does an amazing thing, and I'm so in awe of that. What Peter says seems to be a little bit more in the middle, a legitimate, healthy type of fear. As one writer put it, there's a type of fear that doesn't contradict confidence. All right? One of the top shows on Netflix right now is a sci-fi show called Lock and Key. It's kind of like the new Stranger Thing. You've got a bunch of high schoolers. They're fighting against evil. They're on the side of good. And one of the main characters in the show decides one way that I'll beat evil is I'll remove all of the fear from myself. So because it's sci-fi, she's able to pull out that emotion and be done with it. She kills it, she buries it, and now she's fearless, and she lives her life against evil. But what she finds out afterwards is that in doing so, she becomes really bold, but she also makes a lot of stupid mistakes that have consequences that are terrible. That's the idea that Peter has in mind. Imagine a surgeon with a scalpel. They're confident, but they also have a healthy fear of a misstroke, right? So they do have a certain amount of fear. They don't want to do something foolish. Old Testament wisdom literature will talk this way, that we should be living in the fear of God, like Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. To be uber practical, you could say it this way, God wants you to live today, to know you have a loving Father God who has accepted you, also to know that he is evaluating good works and there is a coming judgment. The complex view of God, but Peter says it's very, very healthy. Now, verses 18 through 20 in the text are a little bit of a sidebar that serve to emphasize that we're living in the last age before the judgment. Remember, all this section is based on the idea of Jesus coming back, and he wants to prove that by saying all the redemptive uh, big shots of history have happened in Jesus. That must mean he must be coming back soon. The judgment is nigh. Look at verse 18. He tells us, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The concept of ransom simply means rescue or liberation. It draws on images of the Exodus where God drew his people out of slavery. Applied to us, it means that God has rescued us from the bondage of living for ourselves. Now we can live for God. We've been ransomed. The ransom, though, was not a monetary fee payment. The ransom was the precious blood of Christ. Jesus paid the ultimate ransom so that we could live. The blood talk is not literal. There's no magic fluid. That's Peter's way of saying the death of Jesus paid the cost, made the sacrifice so that you can live free from slavery. 2012 uh, was the year that the Batman movie came out, A Dark Knight Rises. Some say it's the best one ever. Christopher Nolan wrote the screenplay with his uh, brother Jonathan Nolan, and they said famously as they were writing it that they were inspired by one of the top uh, novels of all time, The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. 
In that book, one of the main characters, who's named Carton, was a lawyer, and he was defending somebody and became friends with that person. And he noticed as they were going through the proceedings that he actually looked a little bit like that person. Right? Well, that person eventually, Darnay, got thrown in jail, and our hero, Carton, decided, I'd like to rescue him. How could I do it? Well, how he did it was snuck in, and uh, he uh, drugged the prisoner as they were in jail. person was in prison, he drugged him, and he switched all their clothes. And then they helped this person walk out of the prison in lawyer clothes, walked out of the prison in lawyer clothes, and Carton stayed inside the prison, pointing his own way towards execution. And indeed, when execution time came, Carton, the innocent one, was led to the guillotine. And Charles Dickens actually gives us the thoughts that Carton was thinking as he was taking someone else's place at the guillotine. He says, this is what the hero was thinking. I see a beautiful city and a beautiful people rising from the abyss. And in their struggles to be free, I see the lies for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy. As much as Christopher Nolan drew his inspiration from A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens drew his inspiration from Jesus Christ, the great sacrificial lamb. The comparison of a lamb evokes images of the Passover. It evokes images of the sacrificial system and even the saving servant from the book of Isaiah. Verse 20 here is going to stress that the plan of redemption was foreknown and ordered by a God before time. Jesus was elected to carry out the mission of redemption. We were elected to be recipients of the mission. Hence, since he's already completed this, his return is nigh and we should prepare for it. We should live our lives in light of the return of Christ. Verse 21, you'll notice that the author circles back to the idea of hope, where he writes, Through him you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. If you glance back at verse 13, you'll see an emphasis of hope in verse 13. As he closes the section, he puts the word hope again. That's his way of creating an envelope around the concept of hope, meaning that whatever's inside of this text is to be your hope as a follower of Christ this week. Look at several of the aspects that we find here in these verses, the aspects of the gospel. Here's the first one. Verse 18, we're told that Christ's sacrifice breaks the power of generational evil. You don't have to be trapped in the flaws and the sin of your father and your grandfather. I'm from Tennessee. My grandfather grew up on a farm. He lived his adult life on a farm. He's a part of the greatest generation. He went and fought in World War II and survived and came back, had a lot of great qualities. But he's also a racist. Because of Jesus, I don't have to be trapped in racism. I can be free from that. That's glorious. That's glorious. And that is to be our hope. Secondly, verse 19, Jesus was the lamb without sin. That means in him you are offered complete forgiveness for every shameful thing you have ever done. 
every shameful thing you've ever done. Jesus forgives you for it if you call out to him in faith and repentance. You can come to him and live free from guilt. Verse 21, we see Jesus as the one who's raised from the dead. In this, he broke the death curse of sin. What does that mean? As he lives, you also live. Don't have to scare, be scared of death anymore. As he lives, you also will live through death. The fear of death has been absorbed by the new life of Jesus. Verse 13 and 21, they combine another subject. Here it is. They stress the glory Christ has been given. What does that mean? It means that he suffered injustice in this life, but he now stands vindicated forever with God. The good news for you is that you too will be vindicated, living in a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no injustice. You will be vindicated in Christ Jesus. All of that's tremendously good news that Peter has for us. And all of these gospel realities stress the mighty power of God in Christ. And soon he's sending Jesus. Very soon he is sending Jesus. And there will be a judgment. We should live and conduct ourselves with an appropriate level of fear that's healthy of the coming king. So our first call today from the text, fix your hope on Christ. Secondly, chase God's holiness. Thirdly, live with a healthy fear of God. And fourth, as found in verses 22 through 25, this is the call to give love. Give God-empowered love. Give God-empowered love. Listen to verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now, here's the action point. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The star on top of the whole Christmas tree of the text is going to be let your longing for Jesus lift your love for others. All right? Let your longing for Jesus Lift up your love for others. As you live with Christ's return in perpetual view, this should propel you to care for other people. Now we're given a couple of reasons why we will be sustained in our love. And that's good news because loving people's hard. I don't know how much you try that. Hopefully all the time. But it's hard to be sustained. But Peter says, God will sustain you for a couple of reasons. First, he says, you have been purified by your obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth is a phrase that Peter will use uh, about being born again, about being converted from uh, darkness to life. You obeyed the call of the gospel, the truth, and now you've been purified. You've been washed. You've been cleansed from things that might hinder you from loving Others. The purify language comes from the Jewish temple where they would take uh, blood of an animal and they would sprinkle it to indicate purification. Peter says, now you have been cleansed by the death of Jesus and freed up to love other words, other people. In other words, if your sin is washed away, 
that empowers you to care for people. If you're full of your sin and the guilt, you're inward focused, right? If you know your sins have been forgiven, you can be outward focused and love people. Here's a second reason love for others can be sustained from the text that's found in verse 23. Since you have been born again, your new life in God's family allows you to love others. Now, God's word here is pictured in a dynamic way. It's living. It's abiding. His point is that when your own flesh is weak and you feel like you can't love anymore, you ever feel that way? It could be with your kids, your in-laws, that next-door neighbor, your boss, the guy under you at work, whoever. You feel like, I just can't love them anymore. I'm at the end of my rope. Peter says, when your own flesh is weak and you feel like you can love no more, remember, your capacity to love doesn't ultimately depend on you. All right? Your love amount that you have to give isn't restricted by your own humanness. It flows from the seed, and the seed is God's powerful word. We had a storm this weekend. I don't know besides missing some school what it did to your house, but uh, my house survived just fine, the great snowstorm. Uh, But we did lose, uh, we did have the internet go out, all right? Since I'm such a technical genius at my house, when the internet goes out, I always go to the modem and (laughs) thinking, I just need to reset this thing. And guess what? It didn't help at all. Because down Highway 50, a car had ran into some mechanical component, and our whole grid, our entire neighborhood and others, lost Internet. It wasn't until, you know, maybe a day later when all of a sudden, Internet service came back on. Why didn't it work when I plugged it in? Power generated outside of my house. Peter wants you to get that. Your power to love is generated outside side of you, all right? That can be very, very hopeful if you're trying to persevere in your parenting, in your marriage, in deep relationships with others. The light comes on and stays on, not because of you, but because of God. It's not self-generated. To back up his point, Peter quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8. Listen to the quote. Because, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails. So when he says flesh, he's talking about your ability to love. All right? Looks good, but it's going to wither away. But, verse 25, the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel's not going to fail, it has infinite power. The gospel is what recreated you into a loving person. Therefore, you can keep on loving. That's his encouragement to you today. You think God's word is going to fail? No. Think the gospel is all messed up? No. And you can keep loving people. As sure as those things will last forever, his love through you can last forever. I read an article this week by writer Alex Duke, and he's, he's pondering this alien 
word-wrought love. And he ponders it with a question. Here's his question. He says, pause for a second and imagine you didn't exist. So all you imaginers out there, people with good imagination, active children and adults, imagine you didn't exist. In fact, imagine nothing ever existed. No people, no places, no things. Is there anything left at all? Well, according to Jesus, there is. And it's love. Not just any love, but love between an eternally loving, eternally secure, and eternally complete Godhead. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are loving one another. All else could fail. Their love was before everything. It will still exist. And it's that love, Peter says, it's in you that helps you to love others. Now, the author that I'm quoting goes on. He says, in light of Christ's return, we should realize that love looks towards heaven. All right? Love looks towards heaven. It just doesn't have the now in mind. It looks to heaven. It looks to heaven because it's empowered and knows Jesus is coming back. And when you love somebody, you have their eternal good in mind, right? So he's finally... Uh, Alex Duke applies this to a situation, not when you're loving somebody, but he flips it and says, think about when somebody tries to love you, all right? Sometimes when people love you, it has a bit of a sharp point, right? There are times in your Christian walk when someone will lovingly come to you and it might stick a little bit. Here's what he says. Imagine a friend who loves you enough to point out your flaws in order to push you towards holiness, Here's Duke's word. Because conversion is real and Christians are new creation. When an occasion requires, they love by reminding each other of the seriousness of sin. And with God's help, they push each other towards holiness. This is why it's almost always from a place of love, not judgment or nosiness, when a brother or sister confronts you regarding sin. Even if the delivery leaves something to be desired, though it may wound your pride, bristle, our self-surety, and tempt an argumentative response, deep down, we should know it comes from a place of kindness intended by God for our own good. Because the Spirit of God empowers other people, you can trust that He's going to love you through other people in order to maintain your holiness, to get you in purity to the return of Jesus. That's good news. Now we're going to move to a more interactive point of a service where we'll take the Lord's Supper together. If you're a believer here, you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper. If you're a guest and a follower of Jesus, our table is open to you. If you're a guest and not a follower of Jesus, we just ask that you pray, talk to God during this time. But if you are a follower of Jesus, we have tables at the front, one at the back. You can come, take the supper, go back to your Go back to your seat and just, we ask that you think, you meditate on what the text has given us today. The Word of God has said, fix your hope on Christ. Pursue God's holiness. Live in fear of God and give God-empowered love. These are four calls that God has given you this morning. I pray that you'll consider them as we take the supper together. Let me pray. God, thank you. Help us as we come to you now. We consider the 
the death of Jesus and the coming of Jesus. As we take the bread, we consider his body. As we take the cup, we consider his death. Help us to respond to your call. God, today wasn't an accident. You don't bring people to church for no reason. You're here to change us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to spur us on. And I pray now during the Lord's Supper, you do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.